Now let's turn to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as they sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, For the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a sad chapter. And Lord, one that we perhaps in ourselves would not choose to seek out. But Lord, you've given it to us for a reason, and we pray, Lord, that we might know it. And Lord, you have given us this mirror indeed of ourselves, this representative of the human race, indeed a representative of your own disciples in Peter. And Lord, we may not, and do not like what we see there, but Heavenly Father, we do like what we see in Christ. And we do like, Heavenly Father, in your goodness to us and giving us your word in order that we might be saved in order that we might be blessed and how we pray it would be so to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after a very brief hiatus, we return to Luke chapter 22 and to this section here between verses 54 and 62. Uh, Very simply, of course, this is the story of Peter's denial And most of us would know the situation involved. It's one of the more well-known in the Gospels. Peter has followed this group of soldiers that arrested the Lord Jesus to the high priest's house. And you understand, of course, it's a kind of compound with a courtyard and probably multiple buildings. And he's there in the courtyard to see what happens to the Lord. And just, or rather to see, as it says in another Gospel, to see the end. And just like the Lord had prophesied, he denies Christ three times. That's the story. The harder part is trying to figure out its significance, trying to see what use it is. You know, the two basic questions that we have to ask of any text, any text in Scripture whatsoever, are what is the doctrine? What's the theology that this is teaching? And how does that theology apply to us? Well, anything involving Christ will certainly tell us something about Christ and therefore something about God. So if there's Christ anywhere in the story, and we know that the whole scripture is about Christ, sometimes we have to look harder for him. But here he is in the, in the flesh. Anytime that we see something about Christ, we know something about God. 
And here we are reminded of his perfect knowledge of the future, his control over all things, his perfect holiness, but also his amazing grace and mercy. Wonderful things. But Peter, on the other hand, which, yes, the bulk of this is about, the bulk of this text, Peter tells us about the doctrine of man, our anthropology, not the study of ancient cultures, that sort of anthropology, but the doctrine of man that we find in Scripture. He was wrong about the future. You know, he had boastfully insisted that this was not going to happen. He's not able to prevent it or anything else that was happening around him. But in his pride, we, well, we, of course, we learn about his pride and moral weakness and failure. That's what we find out about man. And we particularly notice that his denial was not a random occurrence that just happened to him in a flash, but rather was a product of some other unwise decisions that had placed him in this impossible and unwinnable situation of which the result was more or less inevitable. And friends, if that's the case with him, if it had to do with making a series of, of mistakes, of putting himself in this bad situation, how about now for us at the beginning of this year, when we are considering our ways of the years past and trying to chart our way for the future, shouldn't we be looking at this and trying to learn some lessons for ourselves and those around us? Well, this is about Peter's denial in three very simple points. Peter blends in, denies, and regrets. Blends in, denies, regrets. So our first point is that Peter blends in. In verse 54, having arrested him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, they led him and brought him to the high priest, into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now, there is no problem with Peter following the Lord. This is exactly what Peter wanted to do. Peter had said in John 13, 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. He's speaking of his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and yes, his resurrection and ascension. That's what he's talking about. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down your life for my, my, lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So actually, this whole thing was in the context of Peter wanting to follow the Lord Jesus. So the fact that he followed him is not the problem. It was the manner of his following at a distance. Now that information provided in the Word of God is surely significant. So it was not significant. It is not put in there for, for no reason. It's extremely important. Now, why did Peter do it? They'd already made clear in the course of the arrest and the scuffle thereafter that they were not interested in anyone else except the Lord Jesus. That's why this whole betrayal of Judas in terms of the kiss was necessary to positively identify the Lord Jesus. They could have arrested all of them quite easily if they had they wanted. Would have, in fact, saved them some trouble. But they weren't interested in that. They had already made their plan that had to do with a surgical strike to go get Jesus and no one else. Had they wanted to lay hands and arrest Jesus or Peter, they, they surely could have done it, but they didn't. But he nonetheless decides to follow at a distance. 
And by doing this, Peter is trying to lay low. Perhaps, of course, he had already unwisely decided to take up the sword against the the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And figures, perhaps rightly, that if they were going to arrest anyone else besides Jesus, it'd probably be him. So having made that unwise decision, now he is concerned, now he is prioritizing his own security. So he's thinking, well, I do want to see how this turns out, but I also want to make sure that I don't get arrested. So what I'm going to do is follow at a distance. He is making his own safety and security the priority. And the physical distancing could not have but also made for some mental and spiritual distancing. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but it's true, isn't it? Even with people, distancing yourself physically isn't it true? If uh, in a family, if you see someone following at a distance, you, you wonder, is their heart in it? Are they knit together with the rest of the family? Are they trying to distance themselves? Well, here's Peter following at a distance. And I'm sure that even if he had not begun that night with any kind of distance between himself and the Lord, he had created that in his own mind and heart as he followed at that distance. But he's, that's not the end of it. We can already identify two bad decisions, taking up the sword. Now his prioritizing of his security, the following at a distance, but that's not the end of it. He's going to add significantly to the problem in verse 55. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Now keep in mind who the they is. We're always asking who's the they. I remember we sometimes throw this term out and uh, I was on some exercise, and the, the Marines were talking about wh- why they had put the radar way over there or something like that, and I eventually said, I'm the they. Well, sometimes we forget the they that we're talking about. Who's the they here? They are members of the high priest's household who were in various ways involved in the arrest and soon-to-be murder of Peter's Lord. That's the they. And Peter sits down in the middle. Do you notice a contrast there? What was he doing with Christ? He was following him at a distance, right? And here are the Lord's enemies, and he's sitting them right smack in the middle of them. A sad contrast. And the timing for when he decides to do so, I don't know if you noticed it, the timing for when he decides to do so, apparently, is when they kindle the fire. You get the picture that he'd followed at a distance, he's there in the shadows back there, hope they don't see me, uh, and then they kindle a fire. And now he wants to sit down. Why? Because now he is prioritizing his own comfort in addition to his own security. Before he was just worried about saving his skin, now he's worried about warming his body. And he's willing, therefore, to take the risk of being identified to sit down in their midst. Now, those two priorities are at odds with one another. Again, you can't, you can't really do everything for even your own security if you also want to be warm. And you can't be warm if you also want to be perfectly safe. So he's saying, I'll take comfort now at a higher level than I'll take my personal security. But both of those things are at odds with prioritizing Christ. Both of those things are at odds with being faithful to his Lord. Can't choose to do all those things. And he has to prioritize one above the other. And what he's going to do here is decide he wants to be warm. 
His own personal comfort is going to take priority here. And let me say, friends, in that series of poor decisions, taking up the sword unwisely, following at a distance, distancing himself, deciding now to prioritize his comfort to sit down, he is in what I would say an unwinnable situation. And what happens next from this point on is, is pretty much inevitable, right? He's already decided to, that his saving his skin is more important than being faithful to the Lord. But beyond that, he's saying his comfort is even more, fit, more important than saving his skin. And there he is sitting down with the Lord's enemies, hoping to blend in with them. Because that's what he's doing, isn't he? When he sits down, he's hoping not to be noticed, hoping not to be identified. And that's the whole point of these denials. He has blended in, however unsuccessfully, with these people. And it's an unwinnable situation. Well, Peter blends in, sort of, unwisely. Secondly, he denies. And as we go through this, notice that the denials become more emphatic as we go. Right? A series of bad decisions, one worse than the other. It wasn't so terrible to take up the sword. It wasn't so unreasonable to take up the sword bravely, maybe, maybe slightly foolishly, but courageously trying to defend your master. Not so bad. A little bit of foolishness. Falling at a distance, that's worse. Because you want to fire and warm yourself to sit down with your Lord's enemies, that's a really bad decision. But now you have three denials, and they're escalating in how emphatic they are. Verse 56, a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with him. And friends, I hope you understand the power of a look. I was just, we were just discussing uh, not so long ago the idea of uh, even those in a prison camp uh, encouraging one another with eye contact, reminding that they're not alone as Christians in this place. The power of, of, of eye contact. And here, this girl, though she is just a servant girl, but she addresses herself directly and rather boldly to Peter, looking at him intently. And she ought to have guessed that Peter would probably not want the matter been brought up. You understand that. So this was a bold move by the servant girl. Peter didn't want this to be brought up. But she summarized it by her looking intently, as well as her simple and direct statement, is, is confronting Peter. And there's a contrast, isn't there? So here's this servant girl being very direct in her speech, being very bold in the way that she is looking intently at him and saying, speaking actually what is the plain truth. And Peter withers under her look because he's already given in, hasn't he? If he wanted to be identified with the Lord, if he didn't mind being identified... Well, he would have already made different decisions, but he's already capitulated in his heart, and so he needs to deny it. So he thinks, he says, woman, I do not know him. Just, I'm not the main disciple. I don't even know him. I deny knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the second one, verse 58, And after a little while, another, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. You are also of them, the group of disciples. He recognizes him. He has seen him before. Perhaps 
in some previous context as they've been in Jerusalem. They've seen him in the... But perhaps even that very night, because this again was a group of the people who were returning in various ways involved in the arrest of Christ. And maybe they've already seen him as we're going to see. Somebody certainly did. He says, man, I am not. And I think we rightly have an exclamation point in our, te- in our translation that points out that it's a little bit more emphatic in the way it's stated. It's not the end. In verse 59, you would think by this point he might be just decide to get up and say that his warmth is not worth another denial. And he's not going to be able to in any ways keep this ruse up forever. If he so cares about his own security, he ought to at least leave the situation. But unfortunately, then about an hour had passed. After another hour had passed, he's there. It hasn't, hasn't clued into this yet. Another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also with, with, was with him, for he is a Galilean. You understand what he's saying there? It's not, he's looking at him and says, oh, look, he looks like a Galilean. It's his accent, right? And what that tells us is that although Peter had no interest in affirming his belonging to Christ, had no interest in speaking anything like that, but rather only of denying it, he had obviously been talking about something over that last hour in order for there to be this new evidence that he was a Galilean. He had a northern accent, and in the course of talking informally at some point during this hour, probably most of it, they had figured out he was a Galilean. Now one wonders what sort of small talk Peter found to, to pass the time while his Lord was being tried for his life next door. What, what kind of small talk he found with the enemies of his Lord, but he, he found something to talk about. And of course it demonstrated what they all knew, that he was with Christ. He couldn't deny it. He, he couldn't hide it. Even though he tried as, as much as he could, there was no way in the end for him to con- conceal his identity no matter how he tried. It was all in vain. He was found out. But he has to deny even here. Verse 60, but Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. We know from the other Gospels that he punctuates this third and final denial with a curse. A curse. Because that will prove that I'm not a Christian with this curse. Sometimes people do that even today. That's why, you know, the world wants to get you young people to use bad language, to curse. As a demonstrator with them and not with us. But it didn't work in the end. It won't work with them, you know. They want you to say it. They want you to curse. But it didn't really change the fact that this man was a Galilean and one of Jesus' disciples. No one was actually fooled, but Peter had succeeded in denying his Lord not once, not twice, but three times. Not before the Sanhedrin, not before the the high priest, not before Pilate, but before the servant girl and this motley crew of low-level servants of the high priest. He had succeeded in making small talk and warming his body, 
but he'd also succeeded in denying the Lord. The very thing that he said he would never do, but rather die before he did so. Three times. When Peter blended in, now he's denied, and thirdly he regrets, because in verse 60 we see immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now the rooster crowed, that's the wake-up call. We have alarm clocks, I heard one this morning, but in previous time they had roosters, God's alarm clock, programmed by God so that it The coming of the dawn, the rooster crows. In addition to being this herald of the morning, we rightly think of the rooster as being proud. The rooster speaks so loudly and unashamedly. No one else is even awake, but here's the rooster walking around like this, proudly crowing. He doesn't care who hears him. He's glad if the whole world hears him speaking loudly and clearly. That's what the rooster does. Much like Peter, throughout the Gospels, except when it counted, except when it mattered. There he's speaking in low terms, probably trying to conceal his accent unsuccessfully, and refusing to speak of the Lord. Well, this rooster has become the the wake-up call in a different sort of way for Peter. And in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Because this was the thing, right? He said before the rooster, the, the rooster crows, before he makes his sound in the morning, that means in the near future, Peter, before that happens, you're going to deny me three times. And so the Lord looks over. And even as he himself was being tried as a prisoner, as he is soon to be condemned, he was yet the judge of all the earth. And he looks over with his eyes of purity and his eyes of righteousness and holiness, and he he looks at this sinner and sees him. He was the judge, and he's also Peter's friend. And here he had offended the judge, and Peter sees it. And he had offended and betrayed his own beloved friend and master. And I wonder which, which aspect of these things grieved Peter the most. I don't know which one grieved him the most, but we know that he was grieved. Because Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He remembered that. He remembered that. That's the theme in Luke, one of them. Coming to remember the prophecies of the Lord, coming to remember the promises of the Lord. It has the word remember more than any other book in the New Testament. Started back in Luke chapter 1, in the words of Zechariah, 172, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And so the whole gospel is about the Lord remembering his holy covenant. And this remembrance culminates in a couple chapters to come in Luke 24, 5. As they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they heard them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified in the third day, rise again. And they remembered his words. 
It is about the Lord remembering his covenant and in the end, the disciples finally at last remembering and recognizing the words that were given to him. And Peter, at this point, now remembers the word. He had forgotten. He was not meditating upon these things as he should have. He had forgotten all about them in the hours between these things. But now he remembers. And he regrets. Because in verse 62, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. He finally finds reason and cause and willpower to get up away from the fire, from the Lord's enemies, and he goes away to weep bitterly. Now, friends, this is what regret for sin looks like. For some of us, it's been too long. I wonder, when is the last time that we've wept bitterly over our sin? Sometimes, sadly, we have to fall pretty far before that happens. But it's a healthy and good thing that we should, under the gaze of Almighty God, under the, the purity and the light of this word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, consider our ways and weep indeed bitterly for sin. Now what happens from there after this regret? He certainly did regret, and we can be thankful for that. Well, we know that he was restored. Praise God. That's the thing, again, that tells us about Christ. Tells us, you know, we learn everything about Peter, just how weak and foolish and prideful and unwise and sinful he was. All of those things are true. But we surely learn, and we'll find out as he's restored, we surely learn the goodness and mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, some of us would find it extremely difficult to forgive someone who who denied us in such a moment. In the very moment of our need, that one of our very best friends and closest companions should so callously and so cowardly deny that he even knew us, even with a curse, would be a very hard thing to bear. We would find it difficult to ever forgive such a one. How much more so the Lord Jesus, when Peter's obligation to serve, obligation to be faithful, was so much greater than that of any mere human being. But he was restored days later. What an amazing thing. And from there, yes, he was restored. He, even, he then preached courageously in Acts 2. That's the wonderful story of Acts 2, the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit, giving him the ability. One who had withered before the servant girl now stands before the whole world and preaches courageously Christ. And 3,000 people are saved. And eventually he would die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in between there, he had a relapse. In Galatians 2.11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, this is Paul speaking concerning his fellow apostle Peter. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, thankfully, it's not quite as severe. It's not a direct denial of Christ. But what it was was a denial of the gospel of grace of Christ. Christ. 
And it happened under similar circumstances. He cared too much about the opinion of those around him, and in his weakness, he capitulates, and he falls in with him, and he denies his time to gospel. Friends, Peter was, and in some ways remained, a weak man. What we learn from this story is indeed the weakness and frailty of humanity, even and especially regarding the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only good news to be found in it is that this Peter was saved in the end. He was saved. He is a testimony to God's goodness and grace and mercy. Those are the three points. And this denial, he, would, he blends in, he denies, he regrets. Now the applications. You know, the, they say that the purpose of preaching, in summary, is to humble man and to exalt Christ. Well, I, our first application is that we should be humbled in this, in every sort of way. We should be humbled merely to be part of the same human race as this man. You know, the leaders of the people, they were guilty. The teachers of the people, they were guilty. And the leader of Christ's own band of disciples, Peter, he was guilty. What human being in this story of the, the whole deal of surrounding the betrayal and arrest and killing of Christ, who's innocent? I mean, Judas is the worst, yes. But there's nobody innocent in this. Whether by, by actual their doing or whether by their inaction, whether by their denial, whether by their distancing, whether by their collusion in one way or another, everyone is guilty and shares in this sin. You know, this thing that was asked of Peter was not too much to ask. He was not being asked to die for the sins of God's people. He was not being asked even to defend Christ physically. He tried to, but was told not to. All he was asked was simply to own up to the fact that he was with Christ. Own up to the fact that he was a Christian. It's a very minimal expectation. And let me say, it is absolutely an expectation of all Christians. Peter had heard the words of Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever, listen, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you understand that? It's very clear. He says, look, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Friends, we have to explain, first of all, why that was not an empty threat. Because Peter did not die in that condition, okay? Judas did die in that condition. Again, we were speaking of the testing and the sifting, and, and they're all being thrown up in the air, and, and Judas and Peter are up in the air, and at the moment, there ain't much difference between them. They look like chaff for a moment. The question is, where do they end up? Well, we know that Judas ended up in that same place. He was chaff. We know, we're told that he's in hell now. But Peter ended up upside down. Why? Because that's the way he died. Crucified upside down. Because he said, I was not worthy to die in the exact same way as my Lord. 
crucified right side up. And so we are told in church history that he requested he was going to be crucified. He wasn't a Roman citizen like Paul. He requested to be crucified upside down, and so he was. And the last thing he did on this earth was confess Christ with his blood. He didn't end up that way, and that's why those words remained true. And friends, we have to see that Peter's weak. Peter is, in a way, like Adam, a representative of us all. Not that he was a federal head so that he acted for us all, but just that we see in him a prime example of us, prime example of our race failing so miserably in something so very straightforward. He can't even do that much. With, with Adam, it was, don't eat the, the fruit. He eats the fruit. With Peter, it was, watch and pray. Can't do that. Don't deny Christ. Can't do that much. Denies him three times. And friends, I want us to see that in whatever we see, that sort of situation we see ourselves, whenever we see Peter standing, whether it was in Acts 2 to preach boldly, or whether in the end, as he was crucified, we see God acting in his power to uphold that which is weak. Man is humbled in the story of Peter, and so should we be. And then secondly, again, we see Christ exalted. Peter had done exactly as Christ had prophesied. Christ said this, and it happened. And let's let's not lose that thread that all of this word of God is going to happen. It's not the word of man. And we should learn by this. Peter, in his boldness, said it's not going to happen. But we need to know that Christ is always right in everything that he says. He's exalted in this. And again, no one stood with him in this great work of redemption. Peter didn't stand with him at all. And he is all the more exalted in that he 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 trod the winepress of the wrath of God alone. He endured all these things alone. No one stood with him. And therefore, his glory is not shared with anyone. Christ, man is humbled in these things. Christ is exalted. Now, let's think of some more specific applications. The third one, which is more specific, is that we ought to live this year in the sight of God. The reason why I say this is because you, you see the power, don't you, even in this weak man of Peter, when the Lord looks at him. He was blending in, he was denying, he was falling deeper in in sin and foolishness, and the Lord looks at him. And it's changed. Friends, we need to remember that the Lord is always looking at us. The question is whether we are mindful of that or not. It is not that the Lord was ignorant of these things. It is not that it was only when the rooster crowed that the Lord remembers and turns to see what's happening. He's aware at every point what's going on. What changed is that suddenly Peter became aware that the Lord was looking at him. Friends, to live this way is to live, in the old Latin phrase, in quorum Deo, 
in the sight of God. The Puritans and all those who have been of good of use in the history of the church did themselves and recommended to others that we should live in the sight of God. Live our lives in the knowledge that we are naked before God. And our thoughts and our intents and our words and our deeds, they lay open as an open book continually before God. And the issue is simply that we remain aware of it. Because if it is, it is so powerful. If we are continually aware of of living in, in the sight of God, it makes all the difference in the world. So different than the idea that maybe in darkness we can conceal ourselves. No, rather, that we only do, we only think, we only say the things that we would do right in the immediate presence of the living God. So we should live this year in the sight of God. And fourthly and finally, here's the one that I'm going to spend the most time on, the last one, which is stop distancing yourself from Christ and his people this year. Stop distancing yourself from Christ and his people this year. It's, it's another way of saying is stop trying to blend in with the people of this world. And friends, I know that that's what evangelical culture says that we need to do this, this day, okay? I have, to be, I have to go over this in some depth because 90% of the churches that would call themselves evangelical in one way or another give as if it were a command of God the idea that you should blend in with the culture around you. That if you care about evangelism, that you are going to blend in as much as people around you. Have you ever heard the quote, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? You know, a lot of Christians actually think that this is in the Bible. It's certainly not. Okay? The, the first mention we have of anything like of it is, is Ambrose, who is a church father. But listen to the actual words that he wrote. When I go to Rome, I fast on Saturday. But here in Milan, I do not. Do you also follow the custom of whatever church you attend if you do not want to give or receive scandal? Okay, friends? He is not talking about following the customs of the pagan world, but of the pious traditions of the church in things that are entirely indifferent concerning what day, for instance, to fast on, whether it's this day or that day. And if you go to another church, you should submit to the judgment of the elders in these things and not cause offense by deciding to do something else. That's what he's talking about. So if that's the application you want to uphold, then feel free. Fast all you want, whether on Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, I don't care. That's the kind of do when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Now in the scripture, the closest thing we have to it is a statement in 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, the Gentiles, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. What is he talking about? He's talking about the ceremonial law. He's saying there is no such thing as being outside of the the moral law. But he is talking about there are some groups who are under the ceremonial law, have been, and others who are not. The Jews versus the Greeks. That's the whole point of the larger context here. 
And he's talking about something that no longer has any real status under God, but is simply retained, some retain it, as habitual and cultural. And Paul himself cannot but speak and live consistently with the word of God, but he's not going to offend them in matters that are indifferent, like dietary laws. And that's what he's talking about, whether you eat this or whether you eat that. So again, friends, if you want to uphold this principle, this biblical principle, and if you happen to be working in a Jewish context or Jewish evangelism, and if you want to refrain, for instance, from eating pork, how about it? But there is no legitimate inference to be drawn from that to blending in with a pagan, unbelieving world around you. There is no legitimate inference to be drawn. There is no connection there. We have to be extremely clear about that. The word of God does not tell us to blend in, and we should not try. Well, let me just say, Paul speaks also in 1 Corinthians 9 about the issue of Christian liberty. And here we understand a little bit more about the way it goes. He says this, Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that all those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. All right, so whatever he's talking about, this idea of Christian liberty, meaning that there are some things that are indifferent that we can choose to do or not to do, whatever he's talking about, it requires a heroic level of self-discipline, self-denial, and self-control. So again, if you want to talk about this principle that Paul is, is teaching here, make sure that what we're talking about is setting higher standards for yourself so as not to offend others, and doing so with strenuous exertion and self-control that the only apt analogy that you could ever compare what you're doing to is that of being an Olympic runner or boxer. And if that's what you're talking about, friends, and again, have at it. Good to go. But is that actually the way that the Christian church of our day talks about such things? No. It's slouching down to the lowest common denominator. It's a plague of our Christian unions, for instance. Slouching down with the idea that somehow God has told us to blend in as much as possible in order to win them. No, Paul. Paul doesn't do that at all. He disciplines himself. He sets a higher standard in order that he would not offend any. And you know, the last thing on anybody's mind when, when these things are being said is the offending fellow Christians. That's all that's on Paul's mind. It's the whole point of this principle of Christian liberty. Make sure you don't offend your fellow brothers and sisters. Does he care about offending the people in the world? No. No thought about it at all. What he cares about, what he cares about is lest I offend my brother. That is the thing that he keeps bringing up. Lest I offend my brother in my conduct, using my Christian liberty in such a way that it would offend the weaker brother. And again, friends, if that's the thing you're talking about, living your life in such a way to make sure that you do not give offense to your brothers and sisters, then I'm all for it. 
But it's not about trying to not offend the pagans around you because there's no way to avoid doing that. Your mere existence as a Christian is an offense to them. I know I've belabored the point, but I want you to see Peter made some bad decisions, okay? I told you, the idea of taking up arms, that was a bad decision. The idea of following at a distance and distancing himself, that was another bad decision. But in some way, the very worst of all these things was to try to blend in with this group of enemies of the Lord rather than being clear at who he is. You know what? It didn't even work anyways. You can't really blend in. And all of you who have ever taken a stand and have pinned your colors to the mast know that that's the best policy. Because even the unbelievers will respect you for that in the end. They'll have a grudging respect. Blending in, it's not going to happen. God doesn't want it to. Well, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, this is your word. You have given us this sad story of Peter for a reason. We know that there is no scripture that is without its use. And how, Lord, we pray that it would do us much good. Lord, we pray that we'd carefully consider the mistakes of our brother. One, Lord, who is united to Christ with us under the common head. And one for all we know might even be better, stronger, wiser than we Lord, let us humble ourselves and let us exalt Christ in his goodness and mercy and grace that should give forgiveness to such a man and, yes, to sinners such as ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would continually live our lives in this year to come in the sight of God, doing only those things that we would be glad to do were we in your direct and immediate visible presence. Yes, Lord, we also pray that we would abandon any thought of trying to blend in with the unbelieving people around us, but rather doing the thing that will really help them in living distinct lives and speaking clearly, even as clearly as a servant girl, speaking the truth in love and living consistently as salt and light. Lord, in our weakness, but in your Goodness and grace, we pray that you'd enable us to do this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.